Well, as we've mentioned, we're continuing in our series today on uh, the great I am statements that are found in the Gospel of John, uh, where Jesus declares to us uh, insights into who he is, into what his nature is, and what his character is. And of all of his statements, they were very controversial uh, when they were heard by those that he spoke them to. But uh, we're going to look at today perhaps the most controversial of all the statements. The statement where he says that he indeed has power over death itself. And that he is the giver and the author of life. That he is resurrection and that he is life. And so we're going to do that by studying uh, the passage in John chapter 11. And as we do, I thought it'd be important to get a little bit of background as we go into this passage. Uh, there's a couple, two or three characters that we're going to want to get to know. Uh, their names are Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Perhaps you know of them. Uh, there's another story in Luke chapter 10 where it gives us some insight into who just Martha and Mary in particular are. And I love this because you couldn't have two different of personalities. Now, Jill and I, my wife, we have four kids. And, uh, and I'm still surprised that they're still all our kids, right? But they're really, really different. And so Martha and Mary's sisters couldn't be more different. Uh, Martha is kind of the busy, dutiful, diligent, um, hardworking, and at times a little bit semi-stressed out older sister. Um, she has a classic type A personality. And uh, it says of her that she actually was the owner of her home, which was extremely rare in this day and age for a woman to be of such means that she could be actually the owner and the head of her household. And then there's the younger sister, Mary. Uh, Mary's the feeler of the two. Um, she's the doting, emotional, loyal, affectionate one. Uh, a bit dramatic at times, uh, but she likes to lead with her heart. And she is a person who feels and who loves deeply. And so we see these contrasts of personalities. But both of them, it says of, of the two sisters and of Lazarus, three times in the passage that we're going to study, uh, John makes it a point to say how much Jesus loved them. And I just sort of, as a side note, I like that. I like that there's not a personality type that is God's favorite. God loves us all. He, he receives us all. And he embraces us just as we are. And he delights in each one of us. No matter what our personality type, no matter what our background, no matter where, where we come from, God embraces us all. And he accepts us individually and uniquely. So in verses 1 through 16... Um, I'll just kind of describe them to you that kind of sets up the scene for us as we move into the passage that we're going to study. Um, it, Jesus, we find him in the beginning of this chapter, is actually in another town from where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are at. They're in Bethany, a, a town about two miles just outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus is in a town far away. But he gets news that his friend Lazarus is very, very sick. And in the hearing of this news, he does something very, very unexpectedly. Instead of gathering up his things, saying, okay, guys, he's there with his disciples. Let's get on the road. Let's go. Uh, we've got to go help Lazarus. He delays his leaving. And effectively, when he does that, he allows his friend to die. So what's going on here? Why would, why would Jesus allow one of his friends that he loves to go through this situation? Why would he allow Martha and Mary and those sisters to experience the loss of their brother? Was it that he was afraid of what the Jews might do to him? Just weeks earlier, they had picked up stones to stone him. And, and is that the case? Nah. If you know anything about the story of Jesus, he was 
courageous and fearless, especially in his dealings with the Pharisees. Now, he allowed Lazarus and his sisters to go through this difficult time. He allowed it to go from bad to worse for a purpose. And that purpose was to give them a lesson that they absolutely needed for the rest of their lives. And that lesson was this, that he had power over death, that he indeed was God. And so he delays his leaving for Bethany. And so this is where we're gonna pick up the story as we look, and you can look in your bulletins. Um, in John chapter 11, I'm gonna begin reading in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who has come into the world. This is God's word. Now, I want you to notice that there's a, a number of things that Martha gets right here. She's actually pretty far advanced in her understanding of who Jesus is. After all, she had been with him for a number of years now. Notice that she said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She knew. She had watched him do miracles where he had healed the sick. And so she knew that he had healing power. She also said, I know that you'll rise again on the last day. And that time in Israel, there were seven different views of what might happen after death and about resurrection. And she had it right. She understood that on the last day, he would rise again. Jesus had taught her well. She also understood that he's the Messiah, the son of God come into the world. There's a lot that she understood, but there was still yet more for her to learn in believing in Jesus. So, I love this. I love what is going on in this interchange between Jesus and Martha and later in Mary, if you were to read on. Jesus is really committed, and this is something that we can glean for ourselves this evening, that Jesus is so committed to helping us grow constantly in our knowledge of him and in our relationship with him. And he will meet you right where you're at, whether this is your first day of following Christ or you've been following him for a lifetime. Jesus is expert at helping you grow deeper with him. Now, I've been seriously studying the scripture now for, I counted it up, over 35 years, and I'm still learning. I'm still drawn to it. I'm still amazed at how much is in there, but it only makes sense when we think about it. If indeed God is infinite and eternal in his character and his being, why would we think that we could master that in a lifetime? It's literally gonna take all eternity for us to really grasp and understand the depth of the nature and the character of our God. 
You can put it this way, is there's a friend of mine, Rob, who travels quite extensively for a ministry that he's involved with. And I asked him today, I said, Rob, how many, how many countries have you been in? And he's now been in 78 countries. There's 195 countries currently in the world. But he's been in 78. He's not even been in half of them. Uh, he's hoping to go to two more this year so that he can get to 80. Now, that's a lot of experience in seeing the world. But could you imagine how many lifetimes would it take to truly experience all there is to experience in all the different cultures of the world and all the different places that we can go and all the different things that we could see and we could experience, how many lifetimes would it take? Well, as, as big as that is, this world is still very finite. God is infinite. And so we can understand that our lifetime is going to be filled with learning about God if we'll follow him and if we'll let him be our teacher, if we'll let him draw, um, uh, draw us to himself. Now, I want you to notice that in the interchange with Martha, that she has this inkling. Well, she has many things right. There's a place she wants to go, but she doesn't quite go there. So she throws it out. She says, I know that even now, God will do whatever you ask. Do you kind of see what she's doing there? She wants to believe that maybe, just maybe, in this situation, not only will Lazarus be raised on the last day, maybe that can happen here and now. And this is so relatable for you and for me. How many times in our lives have we got to the point where we know enough about God? I, I know he cares. And I know he has the power to help me in my current situation. But in that moment of bitter disappointment, when life circumstances aren't going well for you, or you're still suffering from the ramifications of the sins inflicted upon you by others, or perhaps you're just wrestling with the things that you've done yourself, and you're languishing under the crushing pain of those bad decisions, can we really see that nothing is beyond the reach of God? Nothing is beyond his power. Can we trust in those moments that God is not only good, but he'll be good for me, specifically and individually? This is the life of wrestling with faith. And it's okay to pray in these moments, God, help me in my unbelief. And that's exactly what Jesus does for Martha in this story. He helps her to trust him, even in the face of the untimely death of her brother, and he reveals to her what she needs to know in this moment when she's facing the ultimate problem of death. He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? As Martha stood before Jesus with her soul crushed within her, as she grappled with the emptiness of the pain of the situation before her, she wanted to believe that Jesus could do something about this. And he assured her that he could. He reassured her that he is indeed the great I am, as we've been studying. This is the name that God revealed when he revealed himself to Moses. This is the name God uses for himself, I am. We want to hear in English, Jesus say, I am God. But the more appropriate thing is for him to say, I am, because that is exactly the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament. And he says, I am 
the resurrection and life. He doesn't say, I'm able to resurrect and I will be resurrected. He says, I am those things. He embodies them in his very nature. He is resurrection. He is life. And so this is the God that we serve. It's the lesson she needed so that she could believe him in this situation. And I would like to say that's the lesson that we need for ourselves as well today. I want to share somewhat autobiographically. I'm going to share some of my story um, in the journey that I've been on and how this particular truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life has impacted me. And there's three lessons that I think I'd like to share with you that I think God wants us to know as a result of the truth of this statement. So here's the first one. Because of the resurrection, we can know that God's promise is sure. You can take it to the bank. You can rely on this. In other words, because the resurrection did happen, we can have confidence that our faith is not a fairy tale. It's the real deal. Now, we live in a really skeptical world, wouldn't you agree? I mean, and, and I, I kind of get it why. Think about what it is that we say that we purport to believe. We say that if you believe in Jesus, dead people will live. And not only will they live, they're going to live eternally in paradise forever. There's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more tears. And they will live in eternity with God forever. And I can understand how to the unbelieving mind, to the person who's not grown up around the church and around Christianity, that's a really, really big thing to try to believe. Wouldn't you agree? And so there's a lot of skepticism. It sounds too good to be true. And it comes across like some, to many people, far off sci-fi movie. You know, is that really, really true? So they reject it out of hand. But then there's those that not only just reject it out of hand, they see it as their mission to disprove what all of us believe, that they're so crazy, these Christians, how can they believe that? And so they set out to disprove Christianity. And those folks are actually in a better situation because they have an opportunity to be engaging with the truth. And I'd like to just share that with you. So before we go there, though, let me ask you this. If you were trying to disprove Christianity, how would you go about that? Well, you could be like Saul before he came Paul, one of the characters in the New Testament, where he went around uh, arresting Christians, persecuting the church, and, and basically killing people for their faith. All right? So that's one way throughout the history that the church has been trying to be snuffed out. Problem is, history has now shown after 2,000 years, every time persecution happens, the church flourishes and grows greatly in those situations. Another way that you could do this is that uh, you could make fun of it in the media. You could uh, make fun of it in the entertainment industry. You could speak against it in the education system. You could make it very, very unpopular to name the name of Christ. And certainly some of that is going on even in our world today. Uh, but with a world filled with over 2 billion people today who claim to be followers of Christ, I would argue that, that that's not necessarily working either. Well, let me tell you how you can destroy Christianity. Have you ever played the game Jenga? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's that game where there's 54 blocks. They're little wooden blocks. They're kind of long, uh, you know, rectangular blocks. And they stack them all together in, in kind of like this tower. And then you sit around the table, and each person takes a turn of pulling out one of the blocks, and then they have to put it on the top. 
And so as you go around the table, more and more of these Jenga pieces are pulled out, and the structure becomes increasingly unstable. And so before long, finally, you get down to that one block, and when you pull it out, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Well, guess what that is for Christianity? Guess what that Jenga block is? Disprove the resurrection, and you've proved that the whole thing's a hoax. If you can prove there's not an empty tomb, cash it all in. Christianity, it's a hoax. And so... That's exactly what Dr. Simon Greenleaf, uh, the guy who wrote the brilliant treatise on law and evidence, it's a three-volume set, and upon which Harvard Law School uh, was founded upon this work. And today, uh, hundreds of years later, it's such a profound work that our U.S. judicial system uh, still relies on it, on cooperating what is evidence and the rules of evidence as established by Greenleaf. And so here's what he did. He said, I'm going to take my approach to establishing whether or not evidence proves whether this happened or not, and I'm going to apply it to the evidence that exists for the resurrection. And he did so as he set out to disprove Christianity once and for all. And here's what he wrote. According to the laws of legal evidence used in the courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. At the end of his research, he became a Christian. For me, this is extremely important and very foundational in my own personal journey with God. I came back to God as a student at University of Michigan, and like most secular institutions of higher uh, education today, um, they're based with the, the idea that uh, all there is is the naturalism as we know it, and it's based on scientific rationalism. And so in these environments, they boldly teach that the universe is all there is, and there is no God, and if you believe in God, it's just kind of like you like to follow fairy tales. And so I was in this environment as a young Christian. And so I had to do some of this research for my own faith because I was being told constantly in the classroom one thing, but my heart was telling me another. And then I found research like Dr. Greenleaf. I love this. You need to know that faith is not opposed to reason. Faith is not irrational. It's not blind. You don't have to check your brain at the door as you walk into Christianity. Faith is very rational. But reason alone is not enough. You can know all the information and still have struggle believing. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Martha and Mary. He's inviting them to believe him. And so I want to ask you, where are you today? Perhaps you're one of those who's not yet been convinced. I'd just like to invite you, examine the evidence for the resurrection. There is an empty tomb Christianity is true. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But for most of us in this room, it's probably more along the lines of being at times confused or apathetic or just struggling to believe God. And Jesus wants you to know he's the resurrection. He's the life. And he's inviting you to live a life of believing in him. So the first lesson is your faith is sure. You can take it to the bank. The second lesson that was very important for me is that God wanted me to know, and he wants us to know, that there's life 
in death. Death is not something to be feared as a Christian. Notice what he says to Martha. He says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. In this statement, Jesus addresses the greatest problem that we all face and is everybody who's faced who's ever lived on this planet. The problem, people die. Death is a part of life. No matter what you believe happens after death, I think we all can agree, people die. Now, it's obviously not something we like to think about. In fact, we've gotten really good as a society and as a people to kind of put it in the backdrop, and it's not something that we really often have to allow to come to the forefront of our lives. But unfortunately, it makes itself known on a quite regular basis. Just this week, down in Lake Nona, where we live, a young man who goes to school with our son, 18-year-old boy, Friday evening at 1 o'clock in the morning, was shot six times, and he passed away. And they had to bring in the grief counselors this week to the school. And these young children, these teenagers, are having to deal with the pain and the searing loss of a classmate and to wrestle with this thing of life and death and evil in this world. And so at times, even though we try to keep it at bay, tragedy seeps in and it comes to the forefront of our thinking. And eventually, although we don't want to think about it, eventually it will find us too. For me, I had to wrestle with this a lot earlier than I planned on wrestling with this. And I'd like to share a little bit of my own personal story with you. Back in October or the fall of 2002, uh, I was in the hospital and I was in a situation where I went code red. And uh, that's where you're in crisis and uh, they go into action. A few months earlier than this, I was diagnosed with triple coronary heart disease, which was kind of a shocking thing because I was pretty good shape. I was running marathons at the time and I had just completed my fourth marathon but in preparation for this thing, I was just kind of, really, it was a hard, the hardest one by far. I just didn't feel right the whole time that I was training. The day of the marathon, I just felt horrible, and I ran 30 minutes slower than all of my other previous marathons. And in the days following, the weeks following, I started having this kind of tense pressure in my chest. And I was like, what's that all about? And I thought, nah, it can't be anything. I'm in great shape. I'm running marathons. Well, fortunately, a friend kind of encouraged me to go ahead and go see a doctor, and I went in and I had the tests. And by the time I got back to the office, I got one of those calls. And the call went something like this. Uh, Mr. Kern, are you sitting down? It's not a good thing when, they, uh, when the call starts with, Mr. Kern, are you sitting down? And uh, they said, we've got the, uh, the test results back from your um, procedure here. And it looks like you're 99% likely of having triple coronary heart disease. A couple of days later, I was in the hospital and I had my first of what was to be 11 surgeries and procedures over the next five years. After one of these, I was up at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville and I was in the recovery um, area. And during that time, I, I just didn't feel right. And I broke out in a cold sweat and I started feeling really, really nauseous. And I knew enough by now about heart disease that these are symptoms that I might be having a heart attack. And, uh, and so I just felt horrible. I hadn't felt anything like that ever. I, I knew that something was seriously wrong and I was shutting down. And my blood pressure dropped to 60 over 30, my, my pulse down to 31, and uh, she went, hit the button, code red. 
And all I remember is a flurry of activity. People were scurrying in. Machines were being rushed in. And I went from this just horrible feeling to this just sense that I just want to close my eyes and go to sleep. And so the technician was standing right here next to the shoulder, and he was reaching down, and he's grabbing my shoulder, and he's shaking me, saying, stay with us, sir, stay with us, stay with us, sir, stay with us. And then I kind of come to a little bit, and, and I said, man, that's what they say to, on Band of Brothers when dudes are dying. And I thought, this is, this is serious. And so what I did is I focused on the, the television set that was on, and there happened to be a baseball game on. And it was the Montreal Expos versus the New York Mets. And this was the year before they became the Washington Nationals. And so I looked at the TV, and it helped me to focus a little bit. And I remember a tongue-in-cheek prayer in that moment where I prayed, Lord, couldn't you give me a better game to go out on than this one? I was, in that moment, a little bit playful. I thought I wouldn't be leaving out this door. I thought I'd be going however we go to be with God. And I thought that this was the moment. And here's a lesson that I want you to know. It's true. He will be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. That's his promise. He was with me. I felt his peace. I felt his presence. And I was comforted knowing that there is life in death. His promise is sure. You see, Jesus has ultimately defeated our bitter enemy, death. And there's coming a day when we're going to be united with loved ones lost, and there's going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. And we will experience life to the fullness, and we will know God and be fully known. I want you to know, you don't have to fear death. He'll be with you every step of the way. The final lesson that I think he wants us to glean from the truth that he is the resurrection and the life, he wants us to know that there is life now. It's not just something we got to hang on to the end till we can get to heaven. No, uh, I know a lot of people kind of fall into that trap, but life is now. Notice what he says to Martha. He says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, for years, as I studied this passage, I focused on the end statement, and I just thought it was kind of rehashing the truth that we're going to spend eternity with God. We'll never die. But look at the first part of what he says. I mean, it's none other than an invitation to walk with him by faith, especially, notice the context, in the storms of this life. Martha and Mary, they were in the situation, they, they were crushed by the loss of their brother. They were also confused by the actions of Jesus. The first question Martha asked, is, is, or the statement she made is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Did you notice if you were to read on, Mary says the exact same thing. When she sees Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Do you see what they're saying? They're expressing some confusion and disappointment with Jesus. Where were you? Why didn't you show up? If you'd only have been here, we wouldn't have to be going through this right now. And so they pour out their heart in confusion because God is not acting the way they want him or they feel they need him to act. There's time in all of our lives where God is very confusing to us, where he doesn't seem to act the way that we think he should. The prayers that we pray for our sick family member seem to go unanswered. 
the continual pain that we feel from a broken marriage that just wouldn't be saved. The sudden loss of a family member that leaves us empty and crushed and perplexed about the goodness of God. The sickness that we get diagnosed with that just seems like, God, where, where were you? How, how did you allow this to happen? Why are you letting this happen to me? Life's challenges eventually come crashing in. And in those times, Jesus stands to remind us that he indeed is the resurrection. He is the life. And he invites us to believe in him, to trust him, the one who defeated death, to dare to believe that nothing is beyond him, nothing is beyond his power. Can you believe that? He may not act the way you want or even the way you desperately feel that he needs to, to meet your needs. And this is the fight of faith. Will God not only be good, Will God be good for me? In the days following my code red experience, uh, I actually fell into depression. Depression's real. It's very painful. It's very difficult. Uh, it's very hard. What I learned is those of us who get diagnosed with heart disease, it's 90% of us end up having depression. Um, learned that later. Um, but, so it's very, very common. But not only was I depressed, if I'm really honest, I was angry with God. There's a story of a football player um, who he was going into the end zone and there was a perfect pass, hit him right in the hands, right in the chest, and he dropped the ball and they lost the game rather than having the game-winning touchdown. And he was a follower of Christ, so he went to social media afterwards and he tweeted something to this effect, Lord, I love you, Lord, I serve you, Lord, I've given my all to you, and this is how you do me? I could relate. At this time, I was uh, leading a ministry that did work around the world, and I, I thought, Lord, I fly around the world trying to build your church. I'm trying to pour out my heart to help people grow in Christ. I've given everything. I've sacrificed my career. And this is how you do me? I was angry with God. I didn't want heart disease. I didn't want to wrestle with the idea of potentially leaving Jill and the children at such an early age. And I was confused, and I was hurting. And on top of that, I was a pastor and I wasn't supposed to be allowed to be there. I had to pull it together. This went on for a while, but the Lord led me, thankfully, to a wonderful book by Philip Yancey, the book Disappointment with God. And it was so, so helpful to me because, you see, I, I couldn't stop believing that Jesus existed. I knew the tomb is empty. And I even believed that he's good. My, my struggle was he's not being very good to me. But then I saw it. Yancey, in his book, invites us to see things from God's perspective. And here's what I learned. That if God were to have a love language, a way that God feels love, this is God's love language. When we believe him. That's what expresses love to God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, it tells us in Hebrews. That's how God experiences love from you and me when we choose to believe. In 1 Peter 6, or 1, uh, verse 6, it says, our faith, when it's tested, is precious to God. And it struck me, this is the opportunity that we had. And I realized as I was thinking about all that I was going through in my sadness, part of the sadness, a big part of the sadness was this. I had almost left this earth and the opportunities to believe God would have been done. 
You see, in heaven, we can't have faith. We won't need faith. We'll see him just as he is. We'll know him and be fully known. The opportunity to live by faith is during the time that we're here on earth where we can't see him, we can't hear him, we can't touch him, we can't feel him, but yet we can believe him and we can embrace the promises of God. And when we do, God is honored and God feels love from us. He finds it precious. I don't think I could have learned this lesson any other way than having gone through what I went through. And while I don't want to go through it again, I wouldn't trade it for the world. This is one of the most precious lessons that I have ever learned. And so Jesus allowed the situation to go from bad to worse. He allowed Lazarus to die so that they too could learn this lesson the only way they could learn it. He is the resurrection. He is the life. There is a day coming when he's going to wipe away every tear. We're going to be with him. No more pain, no more sorrow. We'll be with him in eternity. But Jesus doesn't want you to just hold on to the end. This is where we tr discover true life. When this life is enveloped in the daily believing of God and walking with him. When you say every day as an act of worship, all I know of me to all that I know of Jesus. This is the life he's calling you and me to. And when you walk with Jesus in this way, you're gonna experience the power of his resurrection, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the truth that you are indeed the resurrection and the life. Lord, it's proof that our faith is not just some fairy tale, but that indeed, Lord, it's true and that we can give our all and that we can give our lives in confident assurance that we know that there is life and death, but more importantly, Lord, here and now, there's life now. And you're inviting us as your followers to live in the power of your resurrection by believing in you day to day. There's storms of life that are coming and there's times where we'll be confused by you and your action, but my prayer for each person that's here today as God, that they would lean into you and they would trust you and they would walk believing that you indeed are resurrection and life. We pray this in the powerful risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.